Well, if we were writing a book about this, it would start off, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Good evening. My, uh, my name is Bob Hillman. I'm a trustee of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, start off this evening by saying something very important. Go O's. <laughs> and you Philly fans, it's a little too late, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tonight's program is one of hundreds um, the Pratt Library presents here at Central and all its branches. Um, they're all free programs, and um, they do rely somewhat on public support. So if you want to help out, go online at um, www.prattlibrary.com and make a contribution. It would be .org. Oh, I'm sorry, .org and anything would be appreciated. Before I introduce Jamie and Larry, I'd like you to meet Jamie's wife, Karen. Together, she and Jamie have established the Moyer Foundation, which aids children in grief. Karen would like to tell you a little bit about the work the Moyer Foundation does. Karen? Good evening. Again, our apologies for being late. We literally had to hire a car on the street because there were no cabs because our car that was picking us up couldn't get to us because it's still on the beltway. So, sorry. Weather was not something I ever thought would delay us. Um, I just, real, really, really brief. Jamie's legacy on the field is pretty remarkable, and you'll hear so much about that. But what became so much a part of us was our legacy off the field, and that's what the work we do through the Moyer Foundation. And at the Moyer Foundation, we've helped children in distress, and two camps we've created are helping children nationally. One is our Camp Aaron for children who grieve a loss. This is for kids ages 6 to 17 who are grieving a loss of a parent or a loved one close to them, and they get to go to one of our 41 camps throughout the United States and Canada. And we're super proud of our Camp Aaron in Baltimore. Jamie and I have both been. If you check out our website and see the E60 video, that was filmed at Camp Aaron Baltimore a couple years ago. So we're serving kids here through that. And then the other camp that we created is called Camp Mariposa. It's one of a kind, unique camp, serving children ages 9 to 12, who live with addiction at home. We're trying to break the cycle of addiction. We give these kids full support all the ages of 9, 10, 11, and 12 every other month, um, working with them uh, to understand their situation at home and how they can be different. In your book that you bought, I hope while you're waiting for us, that Jamie will be happy to sign, there's a bookmark. And we were blessed to uh, be generous uh, to be generously partnered with uh, Hatfield Quality Meats and um, the Clemens family for a $50,000 match. So anybody that makes a donation um, with this project, your $1 becomes two. And together we are helping kids. So thank you for considering that. And um, Baltimore is a wonderful city. And I, I still say to this day that Jamie played here in 93, 4, and 5. We uh, were blessed to be a part of 3121, 
with Cal. And we also, I gave birth to our number three of eight, our first daughter. So you can imagine how special that it, that it was for us, having a daughter after two boys. And we are, we're so fond of Baltimore. Jamie became a free agent in 95. And I think if the Orioles had signed him, we would have made Baltimore home. That's how much we love it here. So we're, we're really having a good time being back. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for coming out in this weather. And um, have a good time. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? That's the wisdom of Satchel Paige. It's what's in the mind of everyone who plays some kind of senior sport or goes to fantasy camp in Florida in February. In your head, there's a little voice that says, if I got on the treadmill a little more, if I didn't eat as many corned beef sandwiches, um, but no, no, that doesn't work. But it did work for Jamie Moyer. Jamie is a living example of how that can be done. With a fastball that hardly ever topped 85 miles an hour, he had a professional pitching career that lasted from 1984 to 2012 and included 269 major league victories the last one at 49 years and 150 days. That included, as Karen said, three seasons with the Orioles. The book that Jamie and Larry Platt have written, Just Tell Me I Can't, not only chronicles Moyer's amazing career, but is a treatise on the mental side of pitching both the craft of where and how to throw the ball and the psychology of how to be in charge on the mound as taught by Moyer's mentor, Harvey Dorfman. Along the way, they also comment on some of the contemporary issues in baseball, like PEDs, the place of sabermetrics in the game, and the, psych the importance of team chemistry. But what really comes through on every page is Moyer's work ethic and passion for life. Jamie's not only a baseball player, as you've heard from Karen, he's a humanitarian, and their foundation is a model for athlete philanthropy. Moyer has been the recipient of the Roberto Clemente Award for sportsmanship, community involvement, and dedication and the Branch Rickey Award for Exemplary Community Service. Co-author Larry Platt is a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the former editor of the Philadelphia Daily News and Philadelphia Magazine. It's not an accident that the book has a story of how they searched all over Scottsdale, Arizona to find the best Philly cheesesteak in Arizona. Before um, I turn over the microphone, you'll just have to indulge me for a minute while I read you a short passage, which is my favorite passage in the book, and it's about being a warrior, the inner warrior. It says, and then there's the inner warrior. It's the inner warrior who comes to the fore when Moyer 
his eyes narrowed into intense slits, refers to the pitching mound as my effing circle. Moore learned, as Steve Carlton did before him, that a pitcher's body language was inextricably linked to his success. He'd watch an early mentor, Nolan Ryan, walk off the mound during an away game, only to have a rabid heckler drench the flamethrower in beer. But the indomitable Ryan never even broke stride, his hard edge sneer firmly in place while the opposing dugout looked on. The game at that point was over. For Moyer, it was an object lesson. If you let opposing batters see you sweat, they'll race each other to the on-deck circle. And if they think you have an otherworldly composure and nerves of granite, they'll begin to doubt themselves, if even slightly. It's my pleasure to present Jamie Moyer and Larry Platt. Thank you, thank you, and again, sorry for our tardiness. Uh, so just by way of background, um, this book started three years ago when, I think it was three years ago, when Jamie, when Karen, who you just met, and Jamie has been an all-star, but the actual all-star of the Moyer family is Karen Moyer, as, <laughs> as you got a glimpse uh, tonight. So uh, Karen and I, conspired to get a reluctant Jamie Moyer to write a book. Everyone wanted him to write a book. And as he said then, he's not a me, me, me kind of guy. He had no interest in writing a book. But then as we talked, um, and Baltimore is the place where a, a real change happens. So yes. th this is a, a, a particularly uh, important place to be talking about this. As we talked, what what dawned on on me and what we were able to convince Jamie about is that he his story is about overcoming the odds and as as we say in the title just tell me i can't and it's about figuring out the mental game of baseball the mysterious mental game of baseball so before you even got to baltimore jamie let's begin with uh you were in 1991 uh cut by two teams i think your record was 34 and 52 you were not a successful pitcher. You were not in the league. Uh, you had just been let go. You were working out with a high school team in Notre Dame, in, in, uh, in South Bend. In South yeah. Bend. Um, and then you run across this guy uh, named Harvey, Harvey Dorfman, who is a major character in the book. Who is he, and what and what did he teach you? Well, Harvey Dorfman uh, became a great friend of mine, as he did, he befriended many uh, Major League Baseball players. And Harvey, let me go back a little bit further, give you a little bit of history about Harvey. Um, uh, when Harvey was born, he was he was born with an asthmatic, um, what would you call it, an asthmatic disease, disease I guess, yes. Disease. And he wasn't able to be the typical child. He couldn't really compete in sports and things like that because of this. But he, he found sports as uh, in interesting and intriguing. And as he grew up, um, he got his education, uh, went to college, became an English teacher, and also coached a women's high school basketball team, but 
all during those years, I think baseball and you know through through he and his father, you know, taught them a lot of lessons. And somehow he got involved with Carl Keel, who he partnered with in this book called The Mental Guide to Baseball, which I happened to read, and I was told it's a great book, you should read it, and it really you know talks about the mental side of, of the game of baseball. And so I read it, and boy, I thought, wow, this is you know an interesting book, but you know what am I going to get out of this, and what what did I really get out of it? And I thought I got a little bit out of it, and then had the good fortune um, to be invited to his house, or I actually asked to to visit with him for two and a half days in Prescott, Arizona. And upon going to Harvey's, and and Harvey was kind of a, he grew up in the East Coast in the Northeast. Um, he was a little bit brash. His language at times could be a little rough, which I didn't mind. You know, you kind of get a little bit of that in baseball, and you know, I've been around that during the course of my life. And but I found it as challenging. You know, it didn't really. Uh, I wasn't intimidated by him, um, but I looked at it as you know, this is how he's going to try to get across to me. And as I spent that two and a half days with him, he really got me to understand what was in the meat of that book that he wrote with Carl Keel. And at the time, also, he was working for the Oakland A's um, and doing all this kind of same stuff that he and I were doing with players, coaches, and front office in that organization. And then moved on to work for the Rays, also worked for the Marlins, and then later to be hired by Scott Boris, the super agent, and to work with his clients uh, before he passed away three years ago. So back to Harvey. Um, you know, here's a guy that, I didn't know Harvey. We met at the airport. He was coming in from out of town. We met at the airport. We jumped in his car. We took about an hour and a half ride to Prescott. We talked on the way. Um, I'm thinking, what am I doing with this guy? You know, but I want to learn. And he just started asking me a lot about my my uh, upbringing, my educational, um, and and really a lot of questions about who I was and what I was trying to do as a baseball player. And there was a lot. I think he sensed a lot of uncertainty with me. Um, there was some negativity that I probably didn't realize that I was exuding to him. You know, I, I, I struggle with my curveball. I, I, I always hang my curveball or I can't throw my curveball. You know, that's a negative. Can't is a negative. And, you know, there's a lot of things that he taught me. Can't, won't, shouldn't, not. Those are kind of negative words. And the thing that I've learned is, and, 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 and if you think about baseball is a negative game, and you think, well, why is it a negative game? Well, if you're successful... As a hitter, three out of ten times, you're, that's 300 or 333, and you're considered a very successful player. Or if you're a pitcher, you win 15 games out of 33 starts, you're considered a, you're having a pretty successful year. But if you're in any other walk of life, less than 50% or 33%, you're not very successful at what you do. But in baseball, you are. But in baseball, in, in those times of failure, those are times that... You have to deal with that, you know, a strikeout, a ground out with the bases loaded, uh, hitting into a double play with, you know, one out and, you know, a team's in the, in the middle of a rally. Um, you know, you got the fans, you got your teammates that you've let down, uh, and maybe it's the end of game and, you know, you're down by one. So it's, it's you're dealing with all of that, if you will, failure and or negativity. If you now if it's happened to you a couple times, now after the game, you got the media coming. Hey, well, do you think you you know you can play here? Do you think you're a good enough player? So you have people constantly reminding you of the things that you've done poorly. So it's easy to follow that path down that negative down that negative road. And I think 
Harvey really started to exude to me that, you know what, you need to start to change the way you think. The words that you use, even in your self-talk, start to talk positively to yourself. Once you start that positive direction, then you start to add it towards your daily use in your baseball life and in your personal life. Uh, as you're talking, I just turned to the. Uh, let me just give a quick example of that because I think it's it 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 is really important. Um, he says to you uh, after he hears you say, "I always hang my curveball. I can't throw the curveball. Right. I can't." He says, "I want you to rephrase everything you've already told me, taking out all the can't stuff, all the negativity. Restate it. Go ahead. I challenge you. This is going to be hard." Moyer thought. How do you positively observe that you can't throw your curveball for strikes? <laughs> he stammered and stuttered, started and stopped. Finally, he came to this. I'm going to throw a sweeping curveball that catches the inside corner to a right-handed hitter. Dorfman seemed pleased. But he said, just stating that isn't enough. You need to see it, he said. You need to visualize the flight of that curveball before you throw it. So you say it, you see it. And then you throw it. You act it out. Yep. You act it out. So these are things that, you know, this is part part of my road to try to change things and turn things around. And, you know, I, I didn't I don't want and this was all in the off season when I when I spent this time with Harvey. So really it was now time for me to go home. And when I went home, you know, to my wife Karen and we had one baby. Or no, was Dylan born? Yeah, I think he Dylan, was yeah. born. He was a one year old or going on his first year of life. And uh, you know, going home to Karen, you know, I'm like, wow, you know. This, is, this stuff is brilliant. But now it was up to me to spend time and work on it and work on that mental side. And I, I really believe that when I went to spring training, things started to change for me. And it wasn't a drastic change, but it was a gradual change. And all of a sudden, I started to pay attention to other people's conversations, especially in baseball. And you find that, you know, again, not to be judgmental, but I, I started to listen to players and, and not only did I listen, and then I started thinking about, well, what kind of career is this guy having versus this guy and this guy? And I started to see that, wow, this guy is really negative a lot. And then, you know what, he's kind of, his, his career is kind of either going backwards or he's really, he's constantly struggling. He can't get out of his own way. And I, you know, now I started to draw, you know, a latitude to that. Now, now I use that as an example to, for myself. And again, I started to learn through these processes, and it really allowed me to make some nice changes in my thought process and kind of pushed me forward and, and gave me that momentum to continue to try to push myself. Now, we talked about preparation. We talked about, um, and, and that could be preparation in the weight room. It could be preparation pregame. It could be preparation for me. My four days between starts were, what, if you'd ask Karen, she'll say, well, you know, Every day is a work day, but my four days were t between starts were my work day. Okay, I was working on the mental side, I was working on the physical side, but the day that I pitched, I really felt like that was a it was a special day. It was a treat, and those four days, if I worked hard, I felt that I was prepared the best that I could be as I moved on in my career. So it was kind of my fun day, <laughs> and then I would evaluate the kind of day that I had, and then. You know, the next day after I pitched, back to work. And that's, and that's why uh, I remember you telling me that when, when you're the starting pitcher, that day you get to pick the music in the weight room. Right. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of teams I've been with, you know, <laughs> even in the clubhouse sometimes, they'd say, okay, the starting pitcher gets to pick the music. I wasn't really big on that. I'd say, you know what, guys, play what you want, 
But when it comes to the rap stuff, <laughs> if you play it, turn it way down. I wasn't a rap guy. I was a kind of a rock and roll guy. But uh, I, I would play it in the training room. or Yeah, in the training room, in the weight room. Now, Harvey was, when we say a sports psychologist, people think, you know, this soothing, nurturing. No. I mean, the first thing he said to you was, I've seen your act, kid. You've mm-hmm. got to get better. Uh, and he could be profane. Yeah. He get, yeah. get in your face, right? The language, yeah, the language is quite interesting, and he could get in your face. But he was always trying to challenge you. He was always trying to get you to see what was going on inside your head and, and what you were doing. And he wanted you to get better. That was his goal in life. He, he wanted you to get better. But you had to figure that out. He could help you with the information. He could pass the information to you. He could explain the information to you. But you needed to understand it, and you needed to put it to a practical use for yourself. And you were someone who always threw uh, a fastball at 80, 81 miles an hour. He talked to you about, and this took me the longest time to wrap my head around this. He talked to you about accepting who you are and being and turning that into a weapon, mm-hmm. turning your lack of speed right. into an act of aggression. Mm-hmm. You, when you think of it, you know, a lack of speed. I don't think I don't I I don't think of that as aggression. But but that's what you, right. that's what he uh, instilled in you. Can I you learned to take what I had, realize again what I had as far as my pitches. You know, my fastball, 81, 82, 83 miles an hour. But really, my my best pitch probably throughout my career is my changeup. And with a changeup, it's an off-speed pitch. We, you know, all of our baseball fans in here know that. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But creating a variance of speeds was important. But being aggressive with the changeup and not passive, not try to guide it in there, throw it with the same kind of process, thought process, or validity that you were throwing your fastball, your curveball, your cut fastball, your slider, whatever it was. And it really, that part of it really got my thought process starting to move in the right direction. Because what I started to learn was, all right, we all have an ego, okay? But face some major league hitters, okay, some really good major league hitters that have been really good for a long time. They have really big egos, okay? And some of them have really big swings, really long swings. And what I learned was to take that ego of theirs and use it against them so a lot of times you know i'd throw an off-speed pitch and you'd see that big swing and you may get a grunt out of it or a guy kind of falling all over himself or maybe he strikes out and now maybe i hear some verbiage on his way back to the dugout that he's not quite happy (laughs) now i'm starting to get into his mind and that's where the mind game starts and if i know that i'm going in that direction with that guy now I know I got him right here. And the more I can do that and play into his psyche, it, it just you know, creates, brings the advantage to my side. So you're using a slow, the, your slow pitches to, you're playing with his timing mm-hmm. in a way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, pitching is all about breaking up a hitter's timing. I don't care if you throw 95, 99, or 81, 82. Um, you know, you have to, you know, even guys that throw hard, have to have an off-speed pitch. So I, you know, and I knew that, but how to create consistency with that was key. Um, all this kind of stuff helped me with my mechanics and my thought process through working on my mechanics. You know, I, I had to learn to 
what I had, and I had to learn to refine those skills physically, or not only physically, but mentally. And I think that's what really got me going in that direction. And it really started to happen here in Baltimore because Roland Heeman was our general manager when I first came over here. Doug Melvin was the, the assistant general manager. Johnny Oates was the manager. Dick Bosman was the pitching coach. And these people really didn't know me. Roland Heeman knew a little bit about me. But when I came to spring training, it was a spring training invite, big league invite, with a guarantee that if I didn't make the team, I'd go to Rochester and pitch every fifth day. And where I was in my career, I couldn't ask for anything more. So I took that as an opportunity. Had a pretty decent spring. But Fernando, if you recall, Fernando Valenzuela came to the club that spring, had a really good spring. He made the team. And, you know, I went to Rochester and the club came to Baltimore. But fortunately, Arthur Rhodes, and I don't, again, I don't wish injury on anybody, but he uh, had a bad knee. He had a knee surgery. When, they, when he had the surgery, they called me up. And actually, my first three starts here in Baltimore, I lost. So I was 0-3. So here again, here's that challenge. I'm back in the big leagues, feeling pretty good about myself, and I lost my first three games. But they had the faith to stay with me. I won my fourth game, my fifth game, my sixth game, my seventh game, and my eighth game. So I went from 0-3 to 5-3. and And then, you know, now things really... But again, I had to believe in that, and, and they had to believe in me. So, And a, a couple things happened here that we should touch on because we're in Baltimore. Um, and one is... Can you share who uh, Gregory is yes. and what and what Gregory mm-hmm. um, uh, meant to you mm-hmm. and meant to your career? Well, as as an Oriole, um, as Karen alluded, um, you know, we've at that point we didn't have our foundation, but we we like to get out in the community, go to visit kids in the hospital, go to, to schools and read to kids and things like that. And the priest who who married us was from Blakesley, Pennsylvania, and he called us one day and said, "Would you guys?" do me a huge favor. There's a young boy, two-year-old boy from our parish, Gregory Chaya. He's at uh, Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital. He's been diagnosed with a very rare form of leukemia, leukemia AML. Um, Would you just be so kind to go over and just say hello and just spend a couple minutes with him? So we're like, of course we will. So yeah, I've been down this road before, going to a hospital, visit sick children. Walk in the room, and there's a two-year-old boy. At that time, we had a one-year-old, our oldest, Dylan. And walked in the room and went, I, I've, maybe for the first time in my life, was speechless. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to act. There's this sick little boy, two years old, and fighting every day for his life. And I thought, part of this, I thought, wow. How selfish are you, meaning me, because you're so worried about your career and this little boy is fighting for his life. And it really started to put my job in perspective for me. And it really wasn't that important. Now, as fans, oh, it's important for you. And it was for me. Believe me, it was important because it was my livelihood. But I'm in a room with a little boy that may not live more than a couple more days or a couple more weeks. But the cool thing was, this little boy, as sick as he was, and when he could get some verbiage out of his mouth, had the belief of the world on his shoulders that he was going to survive. 
And so did his mother, so did his father, and so did his two brothers, and everybody in his family. And by golly, by the end, by the fall of that, that season, he went into remission. And it's like, wow, this little guy is a miracle. And for some reason, Gregory and I created a bond. And I don't know if I really helped him, but I know he really helped me. So shortly after I met him, I put his initials on the back of my hat. I put them on the back of my shoes. I um, would, would draw his initials on the back of the mound. Um, and it was just, it was very inspirational for me. Because I felt like, you know, I'm not a doctor. I can't really help this kid, you know, from the medical side. But, you know, just for moral support, I can help him. And we just created a bond. We've become great friends. And, uh, you know, he went, like I said, went into remission, went home, and then his cancer or his leukemia came back. His parents had the foresight when it came back at Christmas time to take him out to the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And uh, they, in essence, they saved his life. And he's now 23 years old, living in Blakesley, and um, he's a miracle. But to see that miracle happen before your eyes, it's really special. And he is the only survivor of his class from when he went to the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center. So, I mean... To this day, they don't know why he's alive, but he is. So it's pretty cool. So he gave me a lot of strength through all of this. And, you know, he lived it. You know, I would call him, and, you know, a lot of times after I started, and if I had a bad game, he'd be the one trying to cheer me up. You know, I'm like, wait a minute here. You know, you're sick. You're dying. So it was, it was really kind of cool. And like I said, we just created a bond, and it was really, really special. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the Gregory story. And now through our foundation, we have a, you know, we raise money in in his honor, um, and and those monies are donated to the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center. So it, it's really special for us. You know, Harvey kind of predicted the the effect that Gregory would have on you. He, he said he when he. Uh, when they first met, Harvey held a sheet of loose leaf paper directly in front of Moyer's eyes. Describe for me what's in the room beyond this piece of paper, he demanded. I really can't, Moyer said. There's a desk and a chair, but I can't see the room. The piece of paper is your baseball career, Dorfman said. Any large object held too close to you will block out everything around it. There's a world out beyond this paper. There's a world out there beyond baseball. It's as if he was saying, you need to... to Get your pers- to, to succeed, mm-hmm. you need to get your right. put everything in perspective, right. and that's what Gregory did. Get your priorities did. in order. Yep. Uh, yep. It's an amazing uh, part of the story, but just as amazing is are the lengths that uh, Jamie went to while in Baltimore um, to be, as he calls it, stupid stitious. <laughs> Can you share what? What, okay. and, sh- and show well, the prop. That's that's part of the prop here tonight. So um, uh, back in the 90s, if you recall, uh, the movie Bull Durham was uh, a pretty popular movie, and uh, I had been I been was going through a somewhat of a diff- little bit of a difficult stretch, and a friend of mine from home. I grew up in Souderton, Pennsylvania, and a buddy of mine from home thought he'd be cute, 
and uh, send me something uh, for good luck. So he sent it to me, and you know, I opened, and I had no idea what it was. So be, let me just say, give you the, the, the set the scene in Bull Durham. Uh, the character played by Tim Robbins at the behest of the character played by Susan Sarandon uh, to get out of a slump wears a garter belt under his uniform. Jamie is in a slump. His buddy Scooter sends him this item. The garter belt. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and you know, he wrote me a little letter, and you know, I'm thinking, well, oh, if he sent it to me, i got to wear it, right? <laughs> so I wore it. Okay, but the crazy thing is, you know, you get dressed in in a, in a locker room. It's a room full of men, and I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to pull this one off? <laughs> and if I do, or, you know, if I get dressed, you know, guys are going to see me, and you know, then I'm going to get the raspberries, right? So I'm like, okay, I got it. So I would get dressed, put my uniform on, and I'd get this garter belt and I'd roll it up and I'd stick it in my back pocket. I'd go in the bathroom and I'd go in the stall. I'd open the door, close the door, you know, take my pants off, put the garter on, put my pants back on and then walk back out to my locker, put my shoes on and, you know, and go out and pitch. So, but my big concern was obviously in our home uniform, they're white. You know, this has got some black on it. It's got some purple on it. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, somebody's going to see it. So the, and at the time, you know, naive Jamie didn't know what like these long straps were for. So after I put it on, I kind of pull them up and tuck them up over the waistband, and you know, and off I went. So uh, that the first particular night when I wore this, I pitched against the Red Sox and and won. So of course, stupid stitious Jamie started to continue to wear this. Um, but there were many a times when I'd come in after the game and go to get undressed, and I'd start to get undressed, and go, whoops, I'd had to pull my pants back up. Back in the bathroom, <laughs> take my pants off, take the garter off, put my pants back on and come out and, you know, put in my shaving kit and off I went. But, you know, it's just one of those silly things. You know, Wade Boggs used to eat chicken a lot of times before he played games. Right. You know, guys don't step on the foul line, you know, whatever. They have their same routines. Well, this, and I call this stupid stitious, okay? You know, it probably really didn't help me. And if Harvey knew that I, I didn't tell Harvey about this, nor did I tell my wife at the time either. I was embarrassed. <laughs> Um, but if Harvey knew that I did that, he would have been irate with me. So it had to be my little secret. Because he believed you, that's magical thinking. Right. You have the answers. Right, right. And, and my buddy Scooter, to this day, doesn't believe that I were, but there's no way I can prove it to him. So, <laughs> but if I'm now publicly talking about it, you know, I'm, I wouldn't sit up here and lie to you about this, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah. So that was one of my, uh, fun things in baseball. Should we open it up to... Sure. If anybody has any uh, questions, feel free. Raise your hand. Um, you know, whatever it may be. Um, oh, great. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So yeah, any any time anyone wants to go over, just uh, and the other thing I, I want to say because I don't know uh, if 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 people understand the breadth of of Jamie's career. Uh, yes, he's the oldest player to ever win a major league game. Um, but he's what, as, uh, 269 wins, which is the 34th winningest pitcher in Major League history. And that's after that being a losing pitcher at the age of 30. And he's the eighth winningest left-hander in Major League Baseball history. And most amazing of all, he pitched to 8.9% of all hitters in baseball history. So talk about longevity. Yes, sir. Mark, 
Well, I think right now, you know, they're pretty strong, but it's a long season. So you face the uh, Hall of Fame hitters. Yes. Which Hall, which Hall of Famer had your number, and which Hall of Famer did you have their number? Hmm. Mike Schmidt had my number. Actually, in the back of the book, there's five guys that uh, that I felt hit me well, and there's five guys that I felt like I had kind of the upper hand with. But Mike Schmidt would be one of those guys. Um, that hit me quite well. As I said, somebody asked me that question a couple nights ago, and I said the same thing. And I said, he actually hit a home run off me in Wrigley Field that still might be going. Um, <laughs> but I also would, I, you know, part of, you know, the competitor in me says, you know what, if I faced him in the middle of my career, I don't think he would have had the same numbers off of me as he did early in my career when I was green and young. But that's all part of the learning process. Uh, somebody that I had... Good. No, well, I know Scott Brocious. He's not a Hall of Famer, but there's a guy that I felt like I could throw a beach ball up there, and he wouldn't hit it. So it's and it's, it's it, there's ballparks that I pitched well in, and there's some ballparks I didn't pitch well in. There's hitters I faced that, you know, I pitched well against, and there's and even teams. Actually, after I left Baltimore, when I pitched against Baltimore, I had a lot of success. Uh, when I went back to the National League, when I was with the Phillies, I think at one point I was. 9 and 0 or 11 and 0 against the Marlins. So it's just really odd. And then, you know, my career against the Red Sox, not very good. My career against the Dodgers, not very good. And why? I really can't answer that. I, I don't have an answer. It's just the way it, it shakes out. Bernie Williams also also owned Yeah, you. Bernie Williams hit me quite well too. And at at, at Jamie's 50th uh, uh, birthday party last November, Bernie sent a video thanking him for helping his, his career. <laughs> yeah, another guy, I'll, I'll give you a little story, fun little fun story. Uh, when I was a younger player playing with the Cubs, Jim Sundberg, who was a catcher, was a teammate. And, um, you know, that's back in, I'm sure you all know, remember Chili Davis, who was a pretty prolific hitter. Um, but back in his days with uh, San Francisco, he was kind of green, but big and strong. But, you know, when he would get angry with himself, he would break his bat over his knee. So Jim Sundberg said, hey, I know you're pitching against the Giants tomorrow. If Chili plays, I'll buy you a steak dinner if you can get him to break his bat over his knee. So I'm like, oh, wow, this is kind of fun. You know, so I ended up striking him out, and uh, he broke his bat over his knee. So I, I got a steak dinner out of that one. <laughs> is there another question? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, my real question, when I saw this guy walking with the finals shirt on, uh, I just wanted to know if you could draw any parallels between your career and the Phillies organization when finally winning the World Series. Well, I mean, I don't know if I can compare anything in my career to the Phillies organization, first of all, with all due respect. You know, they have a great history. Uh, you can you know, you probably say, well, yeah, but they haven't won that many World Series, but they have a great history. You think about all the years they've been in Philadelphia, all the players that have come through Philadelphia. It's the same way in Baltimore, a great history. And yeah, it is, you know, you're kind of, as an organization, you're kind of, your place is because of how many championships you've won. But think of all the great players that have played in Philadelphia and Baltimore. It's pretty phenomenal. So for me as a player, number one, just to have the opportunity to put a Major League Baseball uniform on 
has been really special. Number two, to play as long as I have has been, I would have never thunk it. Okay. Number three, to come back at the end of, towards the end of my career and play for, if you will, my hometown team, because I grew up in Southerton, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. And in 1980, I was a senior in high school. I went to the World Series parade. Okay. In 2008, wasn't I that was, a school day? That was a school day, so I, <laughs> I did skip. So I apologize for that, but I did. Um, but in 2008, I happened to be on the roster and pitched Game Three um, for the Phillies. We won the World Series, and come full circle, I was in the parade. So 28 years later, I was in the parade that I went to see when I was a high school senior. So, you know, I will always respect the game and the histories of these franchises. And just to say, you know, just to be a small part of that, it, it, it's, it's heartwarming. But for me to, to be able to say, you know, I was on a team that won a World Series is really cool. But even cooler for me is to be able to wear this ring publicly and share it with whether it be Phillies fans or just baseball fans. Because you know what? It is a great game. And I will always respect it for that. I mean, the people that came before me that have played this game, and to be able to say that, you know, things that I've been able to do, play in Yankee Stadium, old Yankee Stadium. I mean, some of the greatest to ever play the game. I played on the same field. I got dressed and undressed in the same locker room. I took a shower in the same, you know, and, and the old Yankee Stadium, it was all the original stuff, <laughs> believe me. But, you know, or to, or to go to old Yankee Stadium and, and walk through Monumental Park. Or to see the monuments early in the afternoon, play in Fenway Park. I mean, you think of the history that we as human beings are fortunate enough to be around. You know, I played in, uh, what, was the, what was the stadium here? Um, Memorial. Memorial Stadium. I had the chance to play in Memorial Stadium, where this, you know, history-rich organization began. So, I mean, and, and you know, it goes on and on. And then to play with some of the great players that I would able to play with. Nolan Ryan, I witnessed his 300th win, his 5,000th strikeout, two of his no-hitters. I played with Cal when he broke Lou Gehrig's streak. Um, I played with Andre Dawson when he wanted so bad out of Montreal and that turf, and his knees were killing him, he signed a blank contract with the Chicago Cubs and went out and had an MVP year. I mean, to me, those are my three most favorite players, and not because of what they did on the field, but what they represented in the game. So to me, that's, you know, I don't, I don't know if I've answered your question, but from my heart, that's really how I feel about my career because it is just so, so, uh, such a little bit of the game of baseball. But to have that opportunity to have played in these great places and, and play with some of these great players. And by the way, on the, the 2008 parade, there's a great photo of a little kid holding a sign during that parade that said, Jamie Moyer, I skipped school to come to your parade. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> no, he was on the float. I was born and raised in Philly, but uh, to uh, play down the, uh, the role of a fan in Philly and the attitude, I'd like to see that young lady go first, because ladies always work out. Okay. Please write this down a little bit. Um, I read that you were looking 
looking to come back potentially as a knuckleball player mm -hmm. um, this year you're training. Is that accurate? Can we hope to see a comeback? No, I don't think you're going to see that. I think I'm pretty much done. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sarah, there has been a situation. Uh, two questions. One, this is a personal thing. I want mm -hmm. to What do you think or your opinion of Steve Carl? It's one of my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is, what effect do the Philly fans have on you? How do you see them as a player? Where are they? The antagonistic people. Some people make them have to be right. Right. Like we think of ourselves just knowledgeable. Right. <laughs> right. Well, two great questions. Steve Carlton was my idol. So I grew up in, outside of Philadelphia, as we all know, as I mentioned a couple times here. Uh, but grew up watching Steve Carlton. Just loved the way he went about his business. And again, you know, you usually your idol is usually a successful person. And you know, I would never say that I was going to be Steve Carlton or I was Steve Carlton. But I just liked who he was and what he did. Not necessarily how he was in the media. We know he all had his, some of his issues with the media. Um, but that was beyond me. It was I looked at him as the baseball player. And um, I just respected what he did. And I had the good fortune to meet him when I was in college. Um, and then uh, I met him uh, throwing out a first pitch uh, during the 09 World Series. But actually... Uh, the night that Larry and a mutual friend of ours and Karen and I sat and chatted about potentially writing a book, we were in a hotel lobby where Steve Carlton was. There was actually a Phillies reunion going on kind of around us that we weren't a part of, um, and Steve Carlton was there. And he happened to come by with a bunch of friends, and he was actually on his way out the door. And about an hour later, we were still sitting there when he walked back into the hotel and he kind of joined our conversation till probably, what, 3, 3.30 in the morning. It was a late night that we were just sitting in the lobby, again, chatting in the about writing a book, but just talking about baseball and about life. And uh, it, was a, it was a fun time. So, you know, a special guy for me. Um, and as far as the Philly fans, you know, you guys, you probably do have a label. Um, and, and it goes back with the Eagles and the Phillies, you know, you hear about, you know, and the Flyers, yeah, but, you know, everybody knows the story about booing Santa Claus, right, you know. Um, Lance Parrish, after having an, an unbelievable career in um, Detroit, signs with the Phillies as a free agent. And these are stories that I know. Um, comes to Philadelphia, I think he's having a miserable year, I think it's family day, and they introduce his family, and everybody boos the, the Parrish family, you know. Uh, but you know, it is what it is, and I think Philadelphians know that, and I think they like when they get when you know when people talk about that. But I will say this: you know, we had many successful years um, when I happened to play, not because of me, but I was you know part of a group that had a lot of success, and the Philly fans really, really, truly supported us as players. And I only saw the good side as a player because I can't, I got traded over there in August of 06. We were trying to make a pennant run. We fell short. 07, we get to the playoffs and get swept by the Rockies in three, which I think was the best thing that could have happened to us because in 08, we came back and nobody was going to get in our way. We won a World Series. 09, we get back to a World Series. 
Um, and, you know, we got beat by the Yankees. Um, 2010, you know, things started to go a little bit south. We had some injuries. Guys were getting a little bit older. Um, but the fans really, and, you know, and then, you know, Citizens Bank is a beautiful ballpark um, that people can go and really meet people and watch baseball and, and have a good time. So it's an experience. So, you know, you guys might get a little bit of a knock, but, you know, you can go to New York and you get some of that brashness. You can go to Boston. You can get that. You can come down here to Baltimore. You can go to Washington. I think it's just the northeastern quarter. And, and it, but it is, I think a lot of it is, is because you are very educated sports fans and you're very demanding. And I don't see a thing wrong with that. And early in your career, you would hear the yeah, criticism well, from the fans. I learned right? to use some of the, the banter from the stands uh, as a tool. And again, I can attribute this to Harvey. Um, you know, early in my career, you know, Moyer, you stink, you know, you should go back to the minor leagues, you know, and, and if I could hear that, it would bother me and it would, you know, it would affect me. But as I grew and matured and started to understand myself a little bit more, you know, now I can hear, you know, on occasion I hear somebody in the upper deck, Moyer, you old man, you need to retire, go get your AARP card. You know, I heard it all. I believe me, I've heard it all. <laughs> But you know what? When I, as I got older and I heard that stuff while I was pitching, I learned to use it as a tool. That told me that I was not focused. Because when I was focused, I never could hear that. But when I wasn't focused, and it's usually when things aren't going well, you hear that. So what I would do is I would literally say to myself, I wouldn't necessarily look at them, but I would think about I would like to look, them and look at them and tip my hat. Because I learned to use it as a tool and say, time out to the umpire. And I would go back behind the mound and I would act as if my shoe was untied. And I'd untie my shoe and I'd allow whatever he said and the, the idle thoughts that I had that were really probably not working for me at that point in time, I'd kind of let them come in and go out. And then I'd retie my shoe and focus on the task at hand. So I learned to use it as a tool. Yes. Three, three more questions. You okay. Can sure. sure. I could uh, do this all night. So. <laughs> well, we all right. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Jamie. I have a question. Yes. So I was thumbing through your book in the back, and um, you were talking about hitters who hit you particularly well. Mm -hmm. One of them was Manny Ramirez. So mm -hmm. He's a known steroid user. Does that, looking back in retrospect, bother you at all? Do you kind of put an asterisk next to that? Um, well, whether it bothers me or not, it really doesn't matter, you know, because it, whatever it is, it is. And, you know, all this kind of gray cloud that's been hanging over baseball, I think is really unfortunate for baseball. But again, with, you know, the teachings of Harvey, you know, you say, you know, let's use this as a learning tool and move forward. And, you know, there's going to be people that go, well, you know, this is wrong. And it is, it's, it's a poor example to, to exude to children or to athletes, younger athletes, because they think, oh, well, this is a shortcut. This is going to get me to where I need to go. And it's unfortunate that it's looked upon that way, but, you know, they are illegal. So I think with anybody with any, you know, um, conscience is going to think, should be thinking twice before they take them. Because if you get caught, obviously we know what happens. You get in a huge trouble. And if you're a kid taking them, you know, you know, it's trouble again. But the other part of it is, you know, what is it doing to your body? And that's one thing we really don't know about yet. And I don't know if we ever will know the real facts, 
But really, could you do that to your body? Put that in your body? And and I, and I, unfortunately, athletes don't think of it that way. So, you know, I realized that guys did it. And I'd be crazy not to realize that players did that during their careers. Um, you know, you saw bodies change in an offseason like, holy cow. You know, where did this, what did this guy do for the offseason? Because whatever he did, it, you know, it turned him into a different player. A lot of guys that used to be able to barely get the ball through the gap were now able to hit the ball through the, on a line through the gap and maybe hit a few more home runs. The home run hitters that, that did it, not only did they hit home runs, but now they started to hit longer home runs, I think. But I think you know the biggest thing from what I'm learning or have learned about steroids, I think it's a lot about recovery and the way you the, the mental psyche that it gives you. So, you know, again, I'm going to tell you, I've learned to say, you know what, you know, fooey on those guys. Um, you know, they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. But I know too that the majority of the success I had was during that era. So inside, it's kind of a warm fuzzy for me. Again, I'm not proud, believe me. I was embarrassed as more and more guys came because I'm in that same profession. And, it, you know, that black market puts on the particular player, it puts it on the whole game. And, and I struggle with that because that's wrong. But I think, you know, unfortunately, I think what baseball needs to come up with is they need to come up with a stringent or strict rule that if you get caught... Bye-bye. And I think when that starts to happen, you won't see it. And I'm sure there'll be somebody or a couple of guys that try it, but when they get caught, they will be made the example of, and, and we won't see it anymore. So, and I don't know the legalities behind that. You know, it's easy for me to sit here and say that, but there's probably more to it than that. But I think if they at least posed that question and publicly talked about it, I think fans would, would respect it. And I know players now, because we're hearing more and more players who are currently playing talk about I'm tired of this. This is you know getting old. So you know I think something needs to happen. Uh, Jamie, one, first off, congratulations on a great career. Thank you. Okay. Um, with the advent of social media, mm -hmm. okay, what um, what kind of advice would you give to younger athletes uh, with respect to mental toughness, especially with social media providing much more direct access? to players well I think from the social media aspect you know I'm not a real big social media guy but I know as an athlete after games you were interviewed and to me you make yourself available to the media the media can be a great tool and I think this book is a great tool and I commend Larry for writing such a great book but for me it just reiterates how good the media can be because they can get messaging out there uh, and it's the same way with our foundation. We use the media to, you know, to use, if you will, the stage or whatever, the pedestal, whatever you want to call it, that myself as an athlete or us as a couple can be on to get our messaging out there. And I think it's good for players. And especially when, you know, when you talk to the media when things are going well, boy, that's really easy to stand up there and kind of beat your chest. But I also believe when you're not going well, you know, fan, this is a way for fans to get to know you. And I feel like it's it's just it's great conduit, and I think it's you you take the good with the bad. Now the social media, you know, the Twitter and all that kind of stuff, you know, for me, if I was still playing, that would be too cumbersome. It would kind of get in the way of my routine. 
So, you know, and maybe guys have people do that for them. I don't know. But still, that's not the real, to me, that's not the real person doing it. Um, I think it can be used in a very beneficial way, again. And I think clubs are actually trying to get their players to use social media because, you know, it enhances the club and it gets gives people a chance to know the players. But I think there's a fine line there. If I'm at work or at the ballpark, then it's time for me to be at work. You know what I'm saying? There's a time and a place for everything, I guess, is the easiest way to say it. And I think when you use it appropriately, it's great for everybody. When used inappropriately or abused, now all of a sudden, you know, it creates a, a big gray area. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Hi, Jamie. Uh, How you doing? One thing to say and a question. Mm -hmm. uh, watching you pitch, a, I believe it was a one-hitter against the Mets up in New York mm -hmm. two or three years ago was one of my favorite Phillies games of the recent history to Thank watch. Um, it was amazing to watch. Uh, and as being one of Harvey Dorfman's, I'd say, star pupils, do you get any requests from current players to, that you talk to to give them advice? And have you? I, I believe Doc Holliday was one of his pupils as well. Exactly. Have you talked to Doc in any recent time period with the struggles he's been going through? Um, I tried to reach out to Roy earlier in the year, um, but I I realize how difficult it is during the season. You know, I did it for a long time. Um, I'm sure at some point he and I will chat. And you're right, he was a, a huge pupil of Harvey's, and I know that he dearly misses Harvey. Um, Harvey was a great man and touched, like I said earlier in the evening, touched many, many people. And I just believe that what he did and what he taught was such a special thing. And part of what I would like to do as a human being and giving back to the game, I'm actually, we live in San Diego and I'm going to try to open up a pitching academy with using a lot of the things of the experiences that I had in my career, but a lot of things we talk about in this book with kids or with players. I would love to work with professional pitchers. I'd love to work with college kids, with high school kids. To me, they're they're they're, they're probably developmentally a little bit further than the younger you know the younger kid. And for me, the younger kid should just be having fun. The eight, ten, twelve year old, fourteen year old kid, go play and have fun, enjoy it. But play other sports too, so you don't get burnout on the sport. Um, or, or burn out on any sport. But to me, it's a way to give back. You know, I feel like, I don't want to say I've taken from the game, but the game has given me so much that I feel like this is a way for me to give back. And I think that's important. I really do. And I think every player should look at it that way, whether they do clinics, whether they have a, you know, an academy, whatever it may be, they stay in the game as a coach whatever it may be, but to give back because it has given us as players a lot. And it's given us as fans a lot. I'm now a fan, you know, and it, and it continues to give to me. You know, I sit in, in San Diego and at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, if I've got a couple minutes, I'm turning on the Phillies game, you know, because I still know a lot of those guys. That's why I tend to watch the Phillies. But, you know, Cole Hamels is a buddy. Kyle Kendrick is a buddy. Uh, Roy Halladay is a buddy. Cliff Lee's a buddy. And I love watching these guys pitch. But, you know, I like watching Verlander pitch. I love, you know, when I was here with the Orioles last year in AAA, I pitched with a, a Tillman, who's, you know, great kid, great arm, great, you know, potential for great future. Um, and it's just fun to, to watch the game. So. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
Jamie and Larry, thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, we appreciate thank it. You. We love the book, and, and we like being with you. So All right. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you everybody. All.